From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. This is Fire Captain Nathan Ariano, and this episode features an interview with WeFit Coordinator Natalie Knacker and I with Dr. Brent Ruby, who comes from the University of Montana, and that is on heat-related illness. And yes, it goes way beyond staying hydrated. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, here's some news and noteworthy items we want to cover. This week, on both Wednesday and Thursday, the 24th and 25th, is the OCFA Behavioral Health Conference, Past, Present, and Future. To register, go to ocfatraining.org forward slash classes forward slash health to sign up. This conference is going to feature a list of first responders talking about how the fire service has dealt with behavioral health in the past, how we're currently dealing with it, and what the future holds. There's also some good information on behavioral health on our last podcast and last video newsletter. The nomination form for our annual Best and Bravest Award Ceremony is out. Please think of someone, not necessarily just someone in your section, but someone who deserves to be recognized for going above and beyond this year and get that nomination in. You can find out all the info on the form in the briefing folder memo for the best and bravest on the hive. Nominations close on Halloween, so put this at the top of your to-do list. Today, we held a dedication for the Urban Search and Rescue Warehouse in Foothill Ranch. I want to thank the USAR Task Force members, you know, their dedication, their patience. Well, this facility was, was put into service and thank you for your service. These are not easy assignments. They seem pretty cool when you're watching them on the TV, but trust me, when you talk to the people on the task force that are doing this work, this is hard work. Hard work away from home and their loved ones. Um, and I have the utmost respect for each and every one of you. So thank you very much. I, I appreciate the honor to speak. All the work that the logisticians have done here at 54 is all the work that's done before from all the program managers and everybody else that's been involved in this team has allowed all this to happen behind me. And so once again, it's what California Task Force 5 has done for the, since the time of inception until now, and we will continue to do. And this facility is going to allow us the support to allow us to work even better, to mobilize quicker, to have the best equipment, that we have the best trained people. And so on that, which was coined a long time ago for California Task Force 5, strength and honor. And thank you so much for being here today. We just finished our third ARF Academy at John Wayne Airport. It was a three-week academy and ended with a 40-hour crane certification course. John Wayne Airport is the only airport in the U.S. that has a crane staffed by qualified personnel 24 hours a day every day. That's huge for John Wayne Airport and commendable that our personnel are able to achieve that classification. My hat's off to everyone in the ARF program over there. They're raising the bar for the service we deliver to the airport and everyone that uses it. And we'll welcome our newest reserve firefighters from Academy 21 officially on Saturday, November 3rd for their graduation. Congrats to them on finishing the program. And that's all from News and Noteworthy. So on to our interview with Dr. Ruby from the University of Montana. This is Nathan Ariano. I work in operations training and safety. I'm with Natalie Knacker from Wellness and Fitness. And we're here to interview Dr. Ruby from the University of Montana. He is a um, exercise physiologist that's done a lot of research with wildland firefighters. And we're gonna to talk to him specifically about heat-related illness and some different strategies that we can work on. How are you doing, Dr. Ruby? I'm doing great. 
Why don't we start off by just um, asking you about your research. Can you tell us briefly what you do? Briefly? I don't know about briefly. <laughs> well, I, I accidentally got involved with Wildland Fire thanks to a colleague who's long since retired, Brian Sharkey. Uh, so if you don't like the pack test, you can scream at him because I didn't have anything to do with that. But what we're finding with that is there's some really unique features in it that are coming true to life. But uh, that was back in 97 was the first fire I went to. And we got I got some funding from the Army to do some uh, sex differences related research. And part of that study design was using wildland firefighters as a unique surrogate population to the warfighter because we cannot chase warfighters around during combat times. The best we could hope for is maybe to study them uh, during simulated operations. Beauty with the world of fire is while there are some things simulated, it is possible to chase them through actual assignments. And so that's that was what we set out as our goal. So it's been 20 years now, and I've been doing chasing fire crews to collect a whole host of different samples and, and to try to accomplish a wide range of study objectives, uh, everything from energy demands to better nutrition, figure out what the hydration requirements are, heat stress, heat illness, uh, all sorts of different factors with different crews. Okay. Are uh, wildland firefighters good test subjects? They're wonderful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> will, always willing That's to help. It, they will tell it like it is, and uh, I always appreciate that. But one thing we've always done is we've never gone into a study without talking to the crews before we uh, initiate the research. We want to know what their issues are, and we want to know what they think is causing uh, concern on the line. And then based on those, we, we merge that together with our initial impressions to build the overall research uh, focus for whatever the study is. Maybe that's collecting muscle samples before and after shift, which we've done with Hotshot Crew. Um, but getting their input is provides a level of insight that the scientific community is not going to be able to provide. I'm not going to be able to provide that because I'm not out on the line with them all the time. They're out there season after season after season, and they see the issues, and we want to know what those are. So they're very much, it's very much a team effort to play with them. And, and I, the teams that we've worked with, the management teams, the hot shot crews mostly, have been just absolutely awesome. What, just out of curiosity, what, what do they usually say is their main concern or, or something that kind of kept coming up over and over again? Yeah, well, they, they always complain about the sack lunches, but then they always say, oh, you should have been on the last fire with us because that was a real ass kicker, and it would have been fun to know how we responded in that situation versus this current one, which is maybe a little bit easier. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so um, we've, we've chased crews in all several western states uh california and idaho and montana and wyoming and colorado and washington state and oregon uh we've even been to florida so we've we followed crews around to a variety of scenes which is good well kind of uh gearing towards orange county and and some of our you know questions and and 
things that we're always trying to solve or research or, or be preventative in is uh, our heat-related illnesses. And about two years ago, we had, I believe it was like six firefighters that went down on fires, uh, ranging from dehydration to heat-related illnesses. And um, our usual suspect, or what we you know assume to be suspect, is hydration. Um, and I just wanted to know, do you think that's pretty accurate? Um, are we on the right track with that? Or is there other things that may be um, to, to play in this scenario? It's one dimension. But if there is a dimension to put a, it's, it's really difficult for me to talk about heat-related injuries and have hydration float to the top as being the most important thing because I don't think it's the most important thing. Uh, only reason I say that is most of the time when uh, individuals suffer exertional heat stress, the hydration status of them and the electrolyte status of them are is is not impaired. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certain there are certainly situations where somebody says, "Oh yeah, dang, I, I forgot to drink all morning. Yeah, I don't feel so good." Well, that's a different scenario. But under under exertional stress, when the body is producing heat, no matter how good you are at persistently taking in fluids, you will not offset that rise in body temperature that's created by the metabolic activity within the muscles themselves. And so you have to, you have to look at, in terms of what the person is doing and uh, then what the fluid demands are. But you can't just say, okay, make sure you, you – it looks like you're going to need to drink about a liter an hour of whatever. And the whatever could be an electrolyte solution, could be water, could be a combination, could be a whole host of things. Lord knows the market is flooded with all that crap. Um, it's basically all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you can dial that perfectly, but if the person shows up with an inadequate level of aerobic fitness – to match what the rest of the crew is capable of doing on a ruck march hike in or an ingress hike to the fire line, that person, because of their lower level of aerobic fitness, has a heightened risk no matter what you do. Regardless, so regardless of the it, hydration. Yeah, yeah. Be, they can be perfectly capable at, at hydrating, uh, but if they don't have the fitness to back it up, the hydration is – Second thought doesn't matter. Okay, he's so, not going to be able to substitute. Yeah, sure. So about a year ago, I started doing some personal research on this topic, trying to figure out what the best um, defense strategy was, and I became convinced that it was acclimation. That if we worked out in the heat, that would uh, that would reduce our heat-related illness. How important is acclimation? Well, you you have to think about. Um, it's funny the term acclimation and acclimatization are used together acclimation would be i live in montana i want to get ready for the iron man in hawaii i don't anymore but if i did i would train in my heat chamber so that is acclimation i'm using an, a substitute environment to get better better for the real thing if you have the opportunity to use the real thing like the weather there in Southern California or the weather in Hawaii, that's acclimatization, using the real thing. And that can have monstrous benefits, um, especially for people that 
are from one part of the country that know for certain you can just map the 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 track of of where the fires go and if you're a crew in montana and you're coming online uh you're probably going to go to the southwest first and but you're always probably going to go to california because it's always on fire um but to get better prepared for that environment doing things in that environment in a restricted sort of way uh will will prepare you but we did a study where we looked at seasonal uh changes in acclimatization in crews here in the northwest in a crew in the northwest and surprisingly the season i mean they had countless hours in the heat uh, on fires and they really didn't show that much acclimatization over the course of the whole season so it 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 plays a role but again it's gonna sit in the back seat with hydration uh the capacity aerobic fitness and aerobic capacity is really the that's the main thing that is the main thing because a few most fire line tasks and most uh, ingress hikes with a load are darn close to what that what the arduous pack test requires if that is hard for you or if that's hard for an individual or even moderately hard for an individual that means they're at a higher risk for overheating because that's what everybody's going to do and if they're the, the weak link in the chain because they show up and their aerobic fitness is not adequate, they're going to overheat. No doubt about it. It doesn't matter if they garden all day long in the heat or they've acclimatized to the heat. Acclimatization to the heat at rest is not the same as acclimatization to the heat when you're physically active. Yeah. So to, to really force acclimatization to be much more effective, it has to be done uh, – it has to be matched with um, physical activity. You can't just sit in a sauna and hope for the best. So if we were to try to work on both those things, the aerobic fitness and the, I'm going to say this wrong a million times, acclimatization uh, piece, mm-hmm. how long does it technically take? Because, I mean, he, we're talking about, you know, the, the wildland seasonal firefighters, and, and we have, you know, a dichotomy where we sit in an air-conditioned station a lot of the time waiting for these calls to go out. Um and, um, and we're now we're trying to get the firefighters to get outside a little bit more on those days versus just being yep. stagnant. How long does it take to really get acclimatized? I said that wrong <laughs> a bunch. <laughs> or and then what about deacclimating or, or you know how long does it take? Because when we get four days off at home, and you know so is what's your research show on that? And is there a way that we could be working on keeping them more prepared during the season? Wow, that's a that is a it's I as I hear you say that I'm trying to design studies in my mind that would address those things and it's really difficult. There's lots of research out there that has shown um, prediction or predictable rates of acclimation or acclimatization by using one hour a day, two hours a day, ninety minutes a day of of heat stress training. Mm-hmm. What we do know is that it, it's not enough. For you to go outside and just have lunch at a picnic table in the sun, uh-huh. because you're not you're not effectively turning on the you're not perturbing the system enough. What you need to do is go outside and 
walk or do some physical activity on a regular basis in that environment, the amount of physical activity and the load should be similar to what you expect to see when you're hiking to the line or on the line. Um, so carrying a load at moderate intensities in those hotter environments so that you turn on that sweat response you turn that on it's i think it has a lot to do with how many times you turn that sweat response on we have not done that study nobody's done that study so we have a plan to maybe do a study where we're going to try to acclimate people using uh three different perturbation periods in a day versus one to see if we disturb the system multiple times, is that better? It might be, it might be no different. Um, but the one thing we do know is that in order for intermittent exposures to work, it's going to take about seven days for you to start to see some measurable differences. In measures like uh, rectal body temperature, which I would not recommend trying to deploy that methodology down there or anywhere really outside of a lab. Nobody wants to do that. Um, but you'll notice that at the same intensity, your heart rate's a little bit lower. That's a, that's a dead giveaway that it's working. Um, yeah. So about seven days, sometimes a little bit longer, but you're right. You, you're to get that to stick is going to be a function of, well, okay, you've accounted for one hour of your day. What are you doing the rest of the 24? Yeah. What are you doing those other 23 hours? Um, and if you, if you spend your entire time sedentary, those other 23 hours, that's going to be a strike against you. If that is sedentary in a completely comfortable air-conditioned environment, that's sort of another strike against you. Uh, if you're drinking too much alcohol and you're not getting adequate sleep, now all of a sudden three strikes and you're not going to be acclimatizing. Yeah. And, it no matter. and it doesn't matter how much you've hydrated or how great your fitness is. <clears throat> nope, doesn't matter. Hydration's not like a piggy bank that can get bigger. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's one size. <laughs> and it's not like, oh, I'll just, I'll just increase it. Well, the kidneys are pretty damn smart. They're not going to. They're not going to allow you to um, stockpile an extra two liters, so that when you start exercising hard and you're uh, losing a liter an hour of sweat, that you've got a two in the bank and you can afford to lose those and not do anything. Um, dehydration is not really a bad thing. Uh, per se, when a person gets slightly dehydrated, they automatically self-select a lower work intensity. It's tied very close to like a central governor. And so it's almost like that little bit of dehydration and the reduced work output that comes with that is a protective mechanism to keep you from doing dumb, bad things. Um, but acclimatization is one way you can tackle it hydration being perfect at that which nobody's going to be perfect at that but if you show up and uh the pack test is roughly 25 mls per kg in terms of the metabolic demand for the oxygen consumption uh if that's hard for you to do then you're going to have trouble no matter how well you acclimatize 
and no matter how well you hydrate because you're not able to do the work safely without producing massive amounts of heat. So, Okay, so I've got a question. We, we don't have the luxury of deciding when and where initial attack happens. We've just got to get out there and go after it as hard as we can. Yeah. What, what strategies are the folks out there, both on the fire line and, and in the labs, what strategies are you suggesting for us when we feel we're getting to that point where we're either lightheaded, we're not feeling well, we're maybe at the max of what we can or should be doing? Well, try not to get there in the first place. That's the best thing. And oftentimes, we, it's like running. It's like running a marathon. For some reason, someone placed it in every runner's head that if they're walking, they're quitting. And with the, in the world of fire, it's almost like if we take a break, we're quitting. The initial attack is not attack anymore. Now it's we have initial attack, but now we've turned it into initial rest. But you need to approach each initial attack with the idea that the whole thing can't just be attack. It has to be attack rest, attack rest. It has to involve a smart work rest ratio. And that is, I, I don't know of any data except that the military has tried to collect in chambers and things like that. They have specific work rest guidelines under different weather conditions. Uh, and certainly in the world of fire, the weather condition is gonna be bad. It's gonna be high, like black flag almost, or what they would call black flag. And they're like, oh, don't do anything, it's too risky, whatever. Well, the fire's not gonna care if the human is at more risk because of the environment. It's just gonna rip the way it wants to rip. And so, but you have, if you, if you're approached initial attack with an appropriate work to rest ratio, the overall amount of productivity would go way up. Um, and you would, you'd end up getting more line dug, you'd be more productive and you would ultimately lower the risk of that accumulation of heat. Cause as you, as you work really hard, you accumulate heat. As you take a short break, you offload that heat effectively in certain uniforms. I mean, if you're double layered up and cloaked up all over the place, it's going to be hard to offload that heat. But at least you're not producing more heat. Um, so. so by rest, we're just talking you stop work, maybe you unbutton your Nomex, take off your helmet, and take a drink. Yep, that'd be perfect. Okay. That'd be perfect. And if the, nowadays there are so many um amazing uh vessels containers that are highly insulated that if you had the luxury of of taking one of those vessels and keeping the water as close to an ice slurry as you possibly could that would be awesome because Maybe it just have one of those and you because that's where i mean we've shown in a in a ice slurry uh delivery study we can reduce the amount of consumed fluids by half, by providing them with ice slurry, and the, the the hydration factor is slightly compromised, but the the heat stress metrics, heart rate, core temperature, skin temperature, those are all dampened at half the volume. Hmm. Just because it's lowering your internal temperature. Yes. Oh. Yep. Okay. Yeah.
So you wouldn't need as much water is what you're saying too if it's if it stayed that cold. Yeah. Which would be good because then you don't have to carry as much. I mean, obviously that's the big thing is you know you the more weight you carry the more the work you know the harder you have to work. Yeah. Carrying you know a gallon of water or whatever it is and um, yeah. that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, the vessels are uh, quite a bit heavier. Mm-hmm. And you would may not necessarily be your your go to all the time, but boy. Talk about a nice treat on the line, which there are few of, unless you guys are going to start serving draft beer on the line. Uh, there's California. no treats on the fire line. And so having that super ice cold water, even if it's just uh, a few sips an hour during the hot part of the day. And the, some of those vessels are amazing. And we put thermistors in the vessels, filled them with ice and, and water and let them run for 24 hours in the heat chamber and watch the decay. And how long did it take for that stuff to really? Uh, well, some of them will hold the temperature uh, pretty darn well, mm. uh, palatable for 24 hours, 12 hours, wow. uh, which is great. So some of the he- healthier or heftier bottles will do a pretty good job. Another thing we've had some groups do, it'd be hard in in the world of the wildland firefighter, but if you put uh, like a Gatorade Endurance or a Powerade or some some product that has a slightly higher concentration of electrolyte, if you put those in a cooler with ice, a little bit of water, and a little bit of rock salt, it's like making ice cream. That's why you use the rock salt because it lowers the freezing temperature. And so you can create ice slurry mixtures with uh, commercial bottles uh pretty well if you're not careful you can also freeze them solid but um if you if you check them periodically those that would be a really cool rehab tool um uh in like a structural situation it would work quite well now how much could we help ourselves by using electrolyte replacement and different glucose drinks Well, potentially a lot, and potentially they could be negative. Um, the the convenient thing about electrolyte drinks is, well, nowadays there's water, there's electrolyte drinks, and now there and then there's high octane everything that's got the water, the electrolyte balance, and the carbohydrate source. That's like the classic sport drink for lack of a better term and there's so many of those on the market today um in the wildland firefighters typical catered diet including their sack lunches and if they deploy those sack lunch items over a regular basis all day long the underlying uh blood electrolyte concentration is going to be healthy which means there's almost no need for supplemental electrolytes because the diet is so high in sodium in particular. Um, and that's the number one electrolyte that's lost in sweat. Um, but as with acclimatization, the content of the sweat can change. Mm-hmm. So you're pumping out more sweat, but you're preserving your sodium levels. Uh, you're putting out less sodium. And that's a benefit. That's another benefit to acclimatization. Uh, you become a heavier sweater, and you recognize that. But the sweat doesn't hurt your eyes. At least it doesn't runs right off my head into my eyes. If I'm not acclimatized, 
it hurts. If I am acclimatized, it just feels like I've got a nice contact solution running down there. Um, but uh, they are effective if you don't have a lot of food along the way as well. Um, and But they should be served cold ideally. They're going to be much more palatable that way. They're going to be absorbed a lot faster if they're cold. Um, um, and the only benefit of the added carbohydrate is – when an individual is at work, like working diligently on the line, digging, hiking, whatever, and that is consistent, that means you are consistently losing muscle glycogen and liver glycogen. Mm -hmm. And what taking in exogenous carbohydrate does is it at least preserves what's possibly going to be depleted out of the liver. And if the work is long enough, it will preserve what is also in the muscle. So it becomes a surrogate liver almost, and it provides an extra bonus fuel that the muscle desperately needs if the work is ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. So, but most of that research is done with like cyclists and runners, predominantly with cyclists, because that's the easiest thing to do in the lab. Uh, we've done feeding studies with firefighters um, feeding them carbohydrate regularly throughout the day. And when we do that, they work more. And they're more vigilant, which means they're safer, which means decisions at 420 are better. Mm -hmm. So. Gotcha. Um, kind of going back to that aerobic fitness component, which seems to be the, you know, the missing link that we've been talking about with heat-related heat illness. Do you guys have a prescription that you feel is the best to, you know, meet the demands of the, the wildland firefighter? And, um, I mean, what's the VO2 max that you find is, is like maybe the key for firefighters that are out there um, to kind of give us an idea? And then, you know, what do you recommend um, firefighters do to get to that point, like hiking or, you know, running, whatever? Is there, if, have you done a study that kind of... Um, shed some light on that um well that's the we we've started to work on this platform this web platform uh called the black um which provides a lot of these resources ultimately that is our vision for it is to take all the research that we've done and uh roll it into something a little bit better than a research paper because the, the, it's the, the research papers are critical because they provide the defensible foundation for a lot of the things that maybe we say, but uh, we have to be better at translating that to individuals. And so that is one area that we are working on is to figure out, okay, can we take, we're never going to be able to modify the PAC test, but what if we took a system like a heart rate monitor? And we put that on an individual or an individual just put one of those on and it's got to be a chest strap heart rate monitor. Those are going to be work. Those are going to work way better than anything else. Um, so you put a heart rate monitor on, you put a 45 pound pack on and you walk a mile. And we just say, tell me your age, tell me your gender and how fast did you walk the mile and what was your heart rate? If we have that information, we can match that up with a lot of data that we've collected on on these hikes into fire lines and while they're on the fire line and we can tell an individual how ready they are for the season 
with that approach. Um, I've teased different crews and things that I said, maybe if we use this approach, maybe we can make the practice great again. And uh, so I don't know if it, I think it has great potential, but carrying a load on a regular basis is would be a pivotal part of any training program. Running is nice because it's easy. It can be done with low amounts of equipment as long as the individual is not doesn't have any an enormous injury risk uh, that that might get in the way. And certainly in the military and in the world of fire, I'm sure lower leg injuries are the number one thing that they have to watch out for with running. But again, it doesn't have to be, okay, crew, we're going to go out for a three-mile run today and don't stop because that's quitting. Mm -hmm. Rather than do that, make it into more of a run-walk scenario, especially for people that you don't know what their fitness level is. And uh, that little bit of reset, even if it's 30 seconds here, 30 seconds there, has an enormous benefit to reducing the overall injury risk of that one training session. Um, and I'm, I'm as a, I mean, growing up a runner, a competitive runner and ran in college and everything and raced a ton. It took me forever to develop that mindset. And it is so okay. much better. You're always looking at your watch. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love using the GPS and be like, okay, one mile, walk 30 seconds. If I would do that in the heat of the day, uh, and do a 10 mile run, I'd end up running the 10, I'd end up finishing the 10 miles faster with a walk run approach than just straight up running. But um, running is ideal, especially low, lower intensity running. If you can involve some uneven ground, that's even bigger bonus and carrying a load. That's gotta be, those are the two biggest ones for aerobic fitness. Do you, do you guys have a, a like, I, I, a VO2 max or a VO2 that's uh, really associated because our, our new wellness exam has given um, us numbers, given us our VO2 with the gas exchange masks. So I think some of the firefighters would be kind of interested to see where they, are they fit? Are they, you know, where they fall in? We have the IAFF recommendation for just being a basic firefighter, but now we're talking about, you know, you know, where, where we should be or, or where would be, you know, optimal, not just where, what normal is, what's optimal. The early work that Brian Sharkey did to develop the pack test, which is actually sort of the third generation of the work capacity testing program, uh, starting with the step test in the 60s and then migrating to like the mile and a half run and then finally to the pack test. Um, a lot of that is the intensities recommended from that are based on measured metabolic demands on the actual fire line. Uh, and that means collecting that gas on the actual fire line or during tasks that are meant to mimic fire line activities. And those come out to be almost always, not just here, but also in Australia, they've measured the same thing. Almost all fire line activities when they're done when you lump them into one intensity, it's about 22 and a half mLs per kilogram per minute, okay? So what Brian made the assumption is, well, no one can tolerate extended periods of work at greater than 50% of VO2 peak or max. 
And so he simply said, okay, if that is 22.5, that represents at the minimum 50% of max. Therefore, the recommended peak VO2 would be 45 as a as a generic guide. Um, but we have known with other studies that it's not just the peak VO2 that's important. It's what VO2 can you sustain for long periods of time, which is more of a threshold concept. And I can guarantee you the assessment's not measuring that. Um, That's where some of these other performance measures uh, might uh, be able to get at. Like ultimately down the line, my vision is I want to have a simple app that comes with a Bluetooth heart rate sensor you put your demographic data in, male, 200 pounds, 40 years old, uh, okay, walk a mile, carry this 45-pound pack, boom, here's my data. Okay, how ready am I? Because we can do a lot of simple calculations to identify readiness. But I think for people that are predominantly wildland-based that are going to be required to deal with the arduous pack test because the job requires that, the, a, a peak VO2 of 45 is a, is a good one to shoot for. That's going to be really hard for sedentary 40-plus-year-old folks that still want to play that game. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of an absolute world out there uh, in terms of performance on the line. So you can't work in slow motion and get what you need to get done. So I'd like to focus a little bit on what we do on the structural side in terms of when we're wearing heavier turnouts that retain a lot more heat. What do you think, just taking more breaks or longer breaks, or what type of strategies would you recommend in that environment? Well, yeah, I mean, how does that – I don't know how that works in terms of going in and out of a building kind of thing or – Okay, so yeah, the the uh, the rehab schedule, um, the breaks that you take after you are exposed for X number of minutes. How long is a typical exposure period? Well, so it's it usually has to do with the amount of air that we're carrying in our air bottle. Air bottles last roughly, we'll say twenty minutes. They're rated at thirty. Uh, but it depends a lot on the person's physical fitness, how long they can make that thing last. But or what tasks they're doing at, at hand. If they're pulling in a hose line or backing up the hose line, it could be completely different exertional levels. But mm-hmm. usually average is about 20 minutes. Um, and I would say, yeah, you, you pretty much the first, you know, zero to 20 minutes is where the majority of the work is done. And then most of it's kind of, you know, um, uh, kind of a, decline from there less emergent work after that but it's 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 incredible how how fast heat production can build up even in somebody that is almost completely unclothed all you have to do is watch uh an olympic well any track event say 800 meters it's less than two minutes long the person starts the race dry they finish the race, and in five minutes, they're completely soaked with sweat because of the heat production and the sweat response. And so these guys are no different. They're going to start. They're going to hit the ground or the building going gangbusters. They're going to produce monstrous amount of heat. There is no way 
or know where to offload that heat because they're completely encapsulated. Mm -hmm. And so basically they're just tolerating that heat buildup until the rehab period begins. Now the rehab period, unfortunately, once they rest, that doesn't mean that the core temperature is going to start falling. It's going to continue to rise because it just, it just does. And so anything you can do in that rehab window to jumpstart the return of body temperature, the better. And that is very cold fluids can do it. If there's a, if there's a way to offload the garments, that's ideal. Um, there, the army's been pretty successful at doing like uh, forearm ice water immersion as being a possible approach. But the, the, the reason why heat stress and cardiovascular uh, issues go hand in hand is when you have that massive amount of heat produced, the blood wants to go to the periphery to help you offload the heat. If you've already got compromised delivery to the heart muscle itself, you really create an opportunity for uh, exacerbating ischemia or a limited amount of blood flow to that part of the heart when you couple exertion with heat stress. So, yeah, I mean, trying to get the body temperature down as quickly as possible would be great. I don't have the... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, was, I don't have the I don't have the silver bullet, unfortunately. No, I don't think anyone does. It's it's kind of a mixture of things right here. How much does uh, body composition have to do with that too? You know, the, the acclimatization and the, the heat related illness and just aerobic fitness and all. Obviously, we know that if you're, you know, overweight, that's one thing. But like, what about lean body mass? Is there a, an optimal spot for wildland firefighters, or are you finding that you know it's really kind of all over the place? really not that big of a deal it's all over the place uh, definitely there's a wide range but um those kind of things also sort of take a back back seat um to aerobic fitness and if the aerobic fitness is going to be on target more than likely the body fat is going to be on target they're going to kind of follow each other right. yeah. um and so but when you think about a little bit extra body fat, especially subcutaneous body fat, which is right underneath the skin, that's extra insulation, which might make it more difficult to offload some of that heat. I, I think just the if the structural for, workforce sort of looks more like a football player and the wildland force looks like a ultra runner, um, if the structural folks work their way into that, uh, wildland environment, they just got to reduce their work output. It's not, it becomes not a power sport anymore. Hiking for two miles before you even start working is totally different than uh, moving a hose in a minute. Yeah. Uh, it was just very much more of a power type task. And so that's probably why those body types migrate to those different positions. So. Yeah. And it's, it's like, that's where we find a lot of the issues is we're training for the structural side of things, but also have to be ready for the wildland side of things. And it becomes, you know, where's that balance? Where's that, um, crossover? Cause right. we do, we have our hand crew, uh, team and, and they tend to be 
you know, can go for longer periods of time. And then we have more of the structural side where it's like, you know, the power output is right then and there. The strength is higher as far as what they need to do in shorter amounts of time. Mm -hmm. um, but finding that optimal balance between the two is where, where we're still trying to figure out what that is. Yeah, I don't know. The, the diversity within the agency is probably quite good. The management of those human resources is something that hasn't really been addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's, it's not really addressed on an incident either. It's like, okay, this crew has been on that part of the fire for four days in a row. They've just been working their tails off. But there's no measure to say, have they had enough? Maybe we should move them to a different branch of the fire to give them a little rest break. Uh, there may be certain situations that a stronger, more powerful team or group of individuals be better suited for. There may be situations where the, the leaner, uh, smaller, more endurance type person is well suited. And so that mixture is, is sort of a blessing. It's a matter of sort of celebrating that diversity within the groups uh, rather than try to have everybody become one cookie cutter uh, type of a perfect firefighter. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Dr. Rubio, well, I think we're finished. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time. I know you're working on other stuff, but I wanted to give a quick plug to not only your research, which I'll include some of the links to some of the papers that you gave me that I found real interesting, but also a plug to your podcast uh, or the University of Montana's Physiology Department podcast, the On the Line, specifically a podcast. It's kind of a potpourri uh, for wildland firefighters, everything from physical fitness to nutrition and, and some other unrelated topics that I were, thought were real interesting. I had a great time listening to it. Cool. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Okay, yeah. man. Well, thank you again, and I'll let you get back to your work. Um, it's no problem, yeah. Email me anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, cool. I appreciate it. Okay, see you guys. Thank okay, you. Bye. goodbye. Thanks again to Dr. Ruby and Natalie for participating in this podcast. Please don't forget to sign up for the OCFA Behavioral Health Conference on either October 24th or 25th and get those nominations for Best and Bravest in soon. Until then, take care of each other, and we'll talk to you soon.